This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Hey, Emerald, I got you a present. What is it? Free tampons. But that's sexist. What? Did you get some for yourself? (laughs) Yes, because I believe in equality. I bought tampons (laughs) for myself to shove up my own ass. (laughs) That's That's what you guys do with them, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I personally, I don't use tampons because I just hold it in. So, Dan Andrews has pledged free tampons for Victorians if Labor wins the state election. Guess who has something to say about that? <laughs> who? <laughs> who could? Men's. The men's. <laughs> the men's. But, but, like, okay. It's like, what? So, a school child has a period and would like a free tampon, and you're like, Absolutely not under my fucking watch. <laughs> Why? Have you heard of this thing of welfare chauvinism? Have you heard this no, theory? No, what's that? Well, it's this idea. I, I would need to investigate it further, but it is apparently a phenomenon that in political science people talk about, which is probably a big, big outgrowth of the neoliberal era. But it's, yeah, people's resentment towards other people getting welfare, right? The breakdown oh, of social solidarity. Yeah. Yes, right. So this idea that. Other people shouldn't get stuff for free. I struggled hard to afford my tampons. If you want but, tampons, you should succeed in the market and be able to afford your own tampons. Yeah, see, that's where it doesn't make sense because <laughs> you've never had to, like, if it's men who are upset who don't need tampons, why are you upset if you've never, you've not, you haven't had to pay for tampons? Well, a lot of people said, hey, what about free toilet paper? How about that? Okay. With their well, gender neutral, no, Every, everybody on. uses toilet paper. That's a step too far. Sounds like <laughs> socialism, communism, even maybe. <laughs> maybe so. This is just a cracky article that's listed a whole bunch of the responses. Maybe Daniel Andrews should give out free toilet paper to, to Victorians instead of tampons. Bet <laughs> mm, you hadn't thought about that. Dan Andrews, we're making tampons free because they're a necessity, not a luxury. Are they going to be for all the different genders? Please clarify who they are for. So trying to just work in a bit of transphobia in there as well. That's good. Please clarify. But like, so they don't want them to be for all the different genders. Because I guess it's they don't. It, or they just want to trap Dan Andrews into acknowledging that, like, trans boys, for example, might menstruate. Yes, if you were to say we're making tampons free for all people who menstruate, people would go, oh, JK Rowling! Men can't have babies! One reply to the tweet, that's fine for chicks, but what about the boys? What Chicks is spelt <laughs> chicks with an apostrophe S, by the way. What do we get? We we pay the lion's share of taxes, so we should be copping a freebie too. <laughs> Fair's fair. <laughs> But the finest response, the most unhinged, in a now-deleted tweet, this came from a counsellor, Steve Christou. Okay, yeah, I know, you coward. Uh, he's a counsellor of Cumberland City Council. This is, his, um, this is his Twitter bio. Dad to two awesome teenagers, I have a tendency to speak what I think. Some call this a flaw. I call it honesty. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> I call it bravery. He tweeted, free tampons, what's next? Free penis extensions? Question mark. <laughs> and why not? And, you know, maybe that was a genuine, like, request for information because Steve Christo would like to access this (laughs) as universal health care and it's fucked up that you would be trying to deny access. No, he's like, look, I worked hard for my penis extension. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, you know, I don't think that Steve Christo should have to fork out however much it costs for a a penis extension. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that he was just mocked brutally, you know, so much for the tolerant left. That's what I say. Right, that's true. 
under socialism, everyone will get a free penis extension or, or a vagina widening or whatever people require because Medicare should be free. It's in the Greens policy somewhere. <laughs> Talk about the Greens. That funny, that bunch of idiots. They want to destroy the social fabric of society. Well, the Greens get way too good a run in the Australian media. And I'm not suggesting the Greens are terrorists. I'm suggesting they hate our society. Frankly, I've always found the Greens to be a real serious danger to Australia. <laughs> serious danger to Australia. Hey, the Greens. That's the thing that we talk about on this podcast, Serious Danger, a podcast about green politics in Australia. I'm Tom Ballard. That is Emerald Moon. I'm the official Emerald Moon. And you're the official Tom Ballard, but it's not the official Greens Party podcast, which I know can be confusing. <laughs> <laughs> also, we're doing another podcast at the Greens National Conference. But that, again, it's just like a weird coincidence. I, again. It's, it's a corporate <laughs> event. Okay. It is made possible with the help of the Green Institute and produced by Michael the Griff Griffin, whose birthday it was this week. Happy birthday, the Griff. Happy birthday, Mike. Speaking of birthdays, yours is coming up soon. What date is it again? November 26th. November 26th, 26th of November in the Australian format, mm-hmm. um, which is also the Victorian state election and it's the deadline for our goal of reaching 500 patrons. I'm I'm jumping to this because I was just so excited. As you'll see, <laughs> I've left a bunch of notes in the show notes about all the people that I love who have signed up as patrons in the past week. My mom, Aww. my sister, Aww. and my friend Ed. My colleague Izzy, other folks, new patrons, we've got Talisha, Brennan, Thomas, Joshua, Alex, Reiki, Riley, Brad, Stevie, Nicola, Elisil, Josh, Mitchell. We're at 488. That's crazy. We're trying to get 500. We're really close. We just got a week left. This last push, that would really mean the world to us. It would make this show officially sustainable. (laughs) It wouldn't be a a drag on the national debt. (laughs) So please, if you can, go to patreon.com forward slash seriousdangerau. You get bonus content. We record bonus episodes. You get the back catalogue of bonus apps, and you get to be part of the the select few of the Serious Mm. Danger family. So it's great value for everyone involved. This select few. Yeah, we're an upstart, you know, entrepreneurial podcast um we just want to stand our own two feet so Mm -hmm. please pay us just a little bit just a little bit pay for penis extensions hey um if the queensland government doesn't shut it down i'm very briefly gonna plug a little uh book tour that i've announced only because i'm doing the book launch of i millennial one snowflake screen against boomers billionaires and everything else which i have a physical copy of now in brisbane with my wonderful comrade emerald moon on tuesday the 6th of december And if beautiful Serious Danger listeners want to come out to that, that would be awesome. It's happening at the Old Museum. It's run by Avid Booksellers. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to come along. I'm also doing events in Melbourne and Sydney with cool people as well. Uh, but I, won't, I don't want to go on about it, you know, but I'm just saying <laughs> those things are happening. It's just so Oz Freaky and Jen Fran. Yeah. Uh, you should definitely come to that. That one is an official Greens party. It's an official <laughs> Greens book, right? Um, and, yeah, so that'll be an official Greens party event yes uh, and it's an official serious danger event as well so yeah great hope to see you all there <laughs> see you there crew <laughs> what are we talking about this week oh we well we're talking about our wonderful guest returning champion actually at the last national conference this guy joined us on stage don't know sharanga nathan greens council for the gab award on brisbane city council joined us live in melbourne uh, back in june coming back on the podcast to, ch- to chat about the wonderful institution that is the Queensland mm. Police, which I mm-hmm. love and respect. Yeah, yeah. Um, who, I mean, 
we'll we'll get into it, all the fucked up things that they have been saying. They also specifically have been recorded talking about Jono and showing that they actually are targeting him as an elected official. Uh, yeah, I'm sure Jono will have a few choice things to say about these leaked recordings of conversations with um, Queensland police officers in the Brisbane Watch House. So far he has said things like these are the sort of things you'd expect to hear from the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, the Roma Street Watch House is a rat's nest of bigotry. And if the Queensland government can't guarantee that it doesn't have Nazis in the ranks of its police force, then it shouldn't be giving them guns. Oh. Uh, all true, honestly. Go off, King. That's very, very and accurate. Yes. <laughs> we're also going to keep him on for a bit of a chat. It's, it's, it's fucking election week, Victorian State Election Week, and the attacks are coming thick and fast. It's all heating up and getting a little bit messy, and we're going to get his take on that as well. So strap in. And the problems don't never get solved, and the jobs don't never pay enough. Hey, did you need a, pre- a training on how you say my surname? Are you good with it? How do you, you say it? I haven't heard you say it actually. Sri Ranganathan. Okay, Ranganathan. I think that's relatively close to how yeah. I've been saying it. Yeah. Some people are like Ranganathan, but Ranganathan. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I might have done that in the intro. Sorry. Maybe we should oh, go back. Right. <laughs> Jono, Jono Sri Ranganathan, you're here. Here to talk about um, the, you know, QPS worst nightmare, uh, Jono, <laughs> and Greens, <laughs> Greens Councillor for the Gabba Ward. Thanks for having me on the show. I might just start by acknowledging the rightful owners of the land I'm on. I'm on Yagara and Turbal country coming at you from Wool and Gabba. It's, yeah, pleasure to be part of the discussion. You were featured in one of the biggest kind of stories in Queensland this week, probably not as big as it should have been, but got a bit of a run. Basically, on Sunday last week, The Guardian published audio recordings from the Brisbane Watch House leaked to them by a Queensland police whistleblower. They include a whole lot of like vile, you know, violent, um, racist, sexist kind of conversations. Just to rattle off quickly before we get into the conversation, the general vibe of it. it includes officers joking about beating and burying black people, um, joking about pressuring an Indigenous woman in the watch house into giving one of them a blowjob, using racist slurs, um, raising fears that Australia will be fucking taken over by p- people of colour or outbred, quote-unquote, by Muslim immigrants. Um, they talk about skull-dragging protesters uh, and they discuss the decision to drop charges against you for your involvement or, you know, relating to your involvement at a refugee protest, calling you a piece of crap and a half whip. I've got QPS just on Jonathan Street. Yeah. The most anti-police. I've done it That pulled the charges. But, and I'll, I'll tell you now, it was a direction from someone higher. Mm. And I bet you, I'm surprised it wasn't simply vetoed because I know the guy who arrested him. There is fucking no way yeah. he would have pulled those charges. It wouldn't have been pulled apart. And this, that's happened to me once before. Yeah, it's happened to me too. Where a charge has been pulled. The anti-police stuff that he does is just beyond... Mm. Just go through his actual counsellor webpage or Facebook. It's a piece of crap. Mm. And a half week. Because take, a, nice take away the police yeah. and turn it into, you know, anarchy. He's the first one they're going to take everything from because he's weak and can't defend himself. Um, so, I mean, was that, like, were you surprised at all to hear that or any of that, really? 
honestly, literally none of that was surprising to me. Like, I, for, for a start, I knew that they've really got it in for me as an in, individual. So it was almost a relief to hear that directly because for a long time I've been like... Am I crazy? I think a lot of police in Brisbane are targeting me. I think yeah. they kind of have it in for me. I'm like, oh, yeah, proof. Cool, great. I, I know where I stand now. <laughs> they all fucking hate me. Um, so that for me personally was kind of good. But also, you know, the general racism and, and bigotry was not at all surprising, I think, for a yeah. lot of people who have had lots of interactions with the police and particularly who've had interactions with, say, the Roma Street Watch House in a context mm. where there's no other cameras running and they feel unscrutinized yeah you know that all just checks out i was like oh yeah of course who's who's surprised by this were you at least surprised that people are still using the phrase halfwit <laughs> <laughs> haven't heard yeah. that for a while hey yeah and i mean i think the it's it's a classic thing right like if if someone really disagrees with you you have to be able to convince yourself that they must be an idiot and they mm. must be wrong because you couldn't possibly re- so it's like but yeah, yeah it's right. kind of funny the way that even in that conversation, the whistleblower was sort of leading that discussion. So he's like, so guys, what do you, what do you think about this Jonathan oh, counselor? Really? I didn't and realize like, that. I had this image of like the cartoon narc <laughs> leaning in with his wire microphone <laughs> under his shirt, trying to get a juicy recording. Mm, that's funny. Hello, fellow cops. <laughs> yeah. It's like the conversations are almost like that a little bit, but yeah, yeah. Full credit to him for sort of coming out and publicly naming them. Like that was a, a big step for, for the yeah. student to risk that. Yeah, well, I mean, because he hasn't. So the the officers involved in these recordings haven't yet been identified, mm. right? But the the whistleblower himself, I think it's Stephen Marshall, mm. is is his name, and he's come out and said that you know he has faced what he feels is a whole a shitload of retribution, effectively, from his employer QBS for trying to get something done about this, and that's why he he ended up you know bringing it to to the media. Just briefly, and, and honestly, like, yeah. he was he was kind of outed already, right? Like he because. Mm. You know, it's it's cool. He's come out publicly and stuff. But basically, the police minister outed him because he he first wrote, I think, to the premier. Premier fobbed him off to the attorney general. Attorney general didn't reply. So then he sends the recordings to the police minister and says, "Hey, yeah. look, this is confidential. I'm you know I got to be concerned about my safety. I'm worried about reprisals. But can you deal with this confidentiality confidentially?" And the police minister responds by sending it back to the cops. Back to the fucking like, police. So, like, yeah. So, the, so he's like, well, look, it's, it's out there now. There's no point trying to hide my identity. Everyone in the force will know who I am. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And Good job, police I think minister. I would yes. like to come back to that decision to refer it back to the police. Maybe just, just briefly, though, like, can you, for folks who might not be aware, give us like a few examples of why you might have thought that police were targeting you. Like what has your experience been with police, particularly since being elected and using your platform to criticise the Queensland Police Service? Yeah, so it's sort of been a, a long-running thing where I, I share my honest opinions about the role of police in society and will attract a torrent of social media abuse. And so, you know, you can look at people's profiles and they don't even try and hide that they're a cop. So there's that yeah. sort of stuff where you can tell from people's like overtly aggressive and racist commentary uh, what they think of me. But on top of that, in a lot of interactions at p- peaceful assemblies, I've I've found myself being targeted. And so the most overt examples are uh, in 2020, I was standing on a footpath outside the detention center at Kangaroo Point. Uh, I was helping organize some protests. Uh, they didn't really give me a lawful direction to move on, but then they arrested me for failing to comply with the move on direction, took me to the watch house, held me for several hours, way longer than mm. necessary. And then later, after you know, dragged out negotiations, they 
decided to drop the charge because they didn't have any evidence and they knew it was going to be pretty embarrassing for them. Another example is that coming riding home from invasion day one year on my push bike i was like pulled over by a cop for running a yellow light on my bicycle that was the offense i was charged with and again they they dropped the charge and on that occasion they dropped the charge because it turned out that individual police officer who was from like mount omni police station a long way out of the city he'd probably come in specifically for the invasion day rally and and then was on his way out but he had been like trolling me relentlessly on social media for several years and I think it even made a official misconduct complaint about me to like the council. Couldn't believe his review. luck. I imagine. Yeah, so he's seeing like, you on your bike. Oh, I've, like... I've been trolling this guy for years, and now I've got him. And and so yeah, he fined me for running a yellow light on my bicycle. And again, they they dropped that offence. Um, and then more recently, outside the convention centre, again, I was on a footpath. I wasn't really causing any kind of serious disturbance or you know any real justification and I was arrested and charged with both uh, obstructing the police on the basis that I apparently resisted arrest, I guess, and then for the charge of trespass, which is a bit of a silly charge given that I was on public land on a footpath at the time. And that one's still going through the courts, but maybe they'll drop it soon. I'm kind of optimistic. But alongside of those big examples, there's all these little things like every time I'm out in public, an officer will say, Hello, Jonathan. How are you going? Yeah, in that they way clearly where you're like, know who you you're, are. You're, like. you're not trying to make friends with me. This is, yeah, I know what you're doing. And so there's yeah. a lot of that. Um, and then there's been a lot of occasions where cops have wanted to stop me and ask me for my ID. And like, they know who mm-hmm. I am, but they're just mm-hmm. using that power to be like, oh, we reasonably suspect you might have information about some offense. Can we can we get your details? I'm like, you, yeah. you know, I live on a house, but I don't have a fixed address. What else do you want from me? Like, yeah. yeah. You've had your, and you've even been like, I remember a couple of years ago raided in the fucking dead of night at your home, like your house. To be honest, I I wouldn't call it raided, but it was pretty intense. That was in the lead up to one of the kangaroo point protesters as as well. And I think in that case, it was the attorney general. So the Mm -hmm. labor minister made a decision that they wanted to go after me with a Supreme court injunction to stop me organizing a protest that I wasn't even involved in organizing. And that resulted in the cops, you know, walking down this rickety gangplank through the mangroves (laughs) at like, I think it was like 1 a.m. Um, and I'm like, oh, shit, some you know Nazis attacking us. And, of course, they were Nazis, but they weren't attacking us. They were just there to serve this injunction on me. And, yeah, like I'm there like in my pajamas, like staring out the window going, why are the cops here? Um, but it was, yeah, pretty, pretty stressful at the oh, time. To, it would be scary, to yeah. Yeah, and completely unnecessary because I'm like, they know where my office is. You didn't have to wait until oh. 1 a.m. to deliver a no, court document. That's a totally good use of, of resources. It makes total yeah. sense. Like Even to um, be <laughs> to be fair to that officer, even he was like, kind of like, I got the vibe, like he didn't know why he was there or why he was being ordered yeah. to sort of wade <laughs> through the mangroves to get to this boat. But yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, so one of the things like in your response to this, you, I think have been very clear as you always are when you are criticizing the police, that it's not just a few bad apples. Like I, the, the response to this from the, you know, for example, the Queensland Police Commissioner, the Deputy Commissioner, the Minister have now all come out in the past week after these recordings are released. But the angle is always like, oh, yeah, there will be consequences for these people. But the vast majority of people in the police force are, you know, doing such a wonderful job and we stand behind them and they think it's terrible too. And we just need to get rid of the bad apples, which like I I think it would would be good if you could speak to why that is bullshit. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it's stupid for a couple of reasons. The first is that, okay, if it is just a few rogue individuals, why are they still in the force? Like, that, that mm-hmm. you know, there's a difference between, oh, there's a few bad apples and we've thrown them out of the barrel so they won't, like, contaminate the rest of the apples. But, oh, there's a few bad apples and we're just going to leave them in the barrel and let them go moldy and gradually all the other apples will go moldy as well. Like, that's kind of what they're doing. So even if it is just a few rogue individuals, the fact that they're not actually dealing with that and they're allowing those people Mm. not only to remain but often to get promoted and move further up the ranks and get entrenched over time, that's a problem for a start. But really the, the criticism of the Queensland police is not about individuals or individual examples of racism. It's that the institution itself is structurally racist and inherently violent and oppressive. And so a lot of the conversation, particularly in places like Australia, about racism in general focuses a lot on overt racism and, oh, that individual person used a racist slur or has like overtly racist jokes or whatever. And that, I think, undermines a more sophisticated analysis of systemic racism, which is just that you don't even have to look at people's intentions and say, oh, were they intentionally racist? Were they deliberately being prejudiced or biased? It's You look at the results and outcomes of the system as a whole. And if you've got a system that's locking up Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at significantly higher rates than non-Indigenous people, if you've got a system that's like consistently targeting people of colour and resulting in higher rates of convictions for of people of colour for like minor offences like marijuana possession or whatever, you look at the results of the system, you're like, oh, it's racist. It doesn't matter if individual mm. cops were deliberately biased or they were like intending to target people of colour. The point is more people of colour are ending up in the criminal justice system, more First Nations people and people of colour are ending up in prisons. So that's, that's the evidence that shows us that there's a problem with racism. And so it's, it's not about those individuals at all. So I think we, we even need to get away about from the, the debate about how many police officers are individually racist or how many people in the senior leadership are, are racist, mm-hmm. like hold, hold overtly racist views. It's, the point is that the structures and systems and processes themselves are leading to racist outcomes. Yeah, and the argument that then that comes from that. So that's where we we get this idea that the police minister might hear these recordings and be like, "Oh, I've referred it on to the police because the police will deal with those bad uh, you know, those those individuals who need to be dealt with, which is just absolutely ridiculous and we need to stop cops investigating cops." And then you get people, I saw multiple people commenting, for example, on posts that you had made responding to this, being like, "Oh, I hope that you will be joining the police then. We need more good people to join." <laughs> The police, which like, I just, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I want to do. Um, and and we, know, you know, right? we've we've just had another high-profile example of like one of the longest-serving senior-ranking Aboriginal police officers who's quit the force, mm. tendered his resignation letter, and said, "Look, I'm I'm quitting because of of racism. I've spent several years mm-hmm. trying to change racism from within. I've moved up the ranks. I've had direct meetings with the police commissioner and." I still haven't been able to change anything and I think it's getting worse. And and that's, you know, someone who's tri- really tried that change from within approach and has done everything mm-hmm. that could be reasonably expected of them to, you know, follow that strategy and it clearly hasn't worked. So I don't, yeah, I, I don't, need, don't need lectures about how we should try and change the police force from within by joining as a <laughs> low-ranking recruit and then presuming to be able to influence this giant organisation with 17,000 employees. Like that's, that's utter nonsense. Let's not even waste time talking about that. Yeah, yeah. There's good, yeah, like I think a lot of people have spoken about this who have fucking tried it. I know Ronnie Gorey's book, Black and Blue, like talks about it a fair bit. That's a good mm. book if, if folks want to kind of learn more about that. One thing that is interesting, particularly, you know, obviously this is a podcast where we talk about the Greens 
a lot. And the Greens' position, though, when it comes to, yeah, police as an institution, I would say is is not settled in that, like, I think you would come out and you are talking about uh, abolishing police or the, the fact that police or even when we say defund police, that's not even part of, of the Greens' policy platform. But I don't, I think a lot of Greens voters and a lot of Greens members would agree that like the police as an institution should get less money, should have a lot less power if it should even exist at all. So, I mean, do you think that like the official party policy and position is kind of reflecting where we should be by now or not? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's there's been a lot of movement in terms of general public sentiment on this sort of stuff over the mm. last couple of years with Black Lives Matter. And it's probably taken the party policy frameworks a few years to catch up. So there's there's that to start with. But even even the most conservative Greens members would probably agree that if you know an organisation has lots of violent racists in it, don't give those people guns. Don't give them the power to lock people mm. up arbitrarily. Don't give them salaries. So when you frame the conversation <laughs> like that and you're like, do you think we should be giving Nazis and Ku Klux Klan sympathizers weapons and the power to stop and frisk black people in the street? Most people are like, yeah, no. But I think the problem <laughs> for the Greens and and to be honest, for a lot of political parties is that because the police is is beyond reform, that the very institution itself is inherently oppressive, is sort of intrinsically linked with the unjust sort of foundations of colonisation. Because you can't reform it, there's not much else for a political party to say because as soon as you get into that conversation about abolition, you're really talking about transforming so many aspects of society. So you can't have a clear, mm. clean one-liner when the journalist is like, what do you want to do about police racism? The answer is, we want to change like everything. We want better public housing and we <laughs> yeah. want more support services yeah. for people with substance abuse issues. Like there's no way to give a short, simple policy answer to that. What we're really talking is about is about like peaceful revolutionary transformation. And, and it's <laughs> even, even a, a radical political party finds it hard to articulate because through an abolitionist framework, the world we're trying to get to and the utopia we're imagining is so far removed from mm -hmm. where we're dealing with it. At what we're, and, and often a lot of Greens policies, although they're all interlinked and our statement selections are about like, there's this broad platform and all the changes support each other. It's hard to talk about particularly at, at abolishing the police in isolation from all those other reforms. Yeah. And and mm. if, you're, if you're not politically courageous enough to come out and say, yeah, look, the police are beyond reform, then what else can you say? Like at one of the press conferences that the other day, a journalist asked me, so councillor, do you think there should be more anti-racism training for police officers? I was like, no, we've, we, that's not, that's not going to fix this problem. It's like, yeah. it's not like the cops know that it's, it's, they, they, they already know it's wrong to use racial slurs. They already know that they're not meant to be mm. singling out and targeting Aboriginal people, like forcing them to sit through like some cultural competency training. Another slideshow. That's probably not going to deal with the underlying problems here. And yeah. rooting that doesn't work, right, because they know they're protected. This is another very sticky point, I think, particularly on the left, if you care about, say, unions, for example. The mm. cop union often works, you know, wherever they're found to protect the worst of behaviour, to prevent all their members from you know, receiving the justice or being held to account as we would expect and the level of silence and, um, yeah, expected solidarity between cop members means that even when this bad behaviour is exposed and brooded out, these, yeah, whistleblowers faced huge retribution, right? Like yeah. there's, there's calls for, for, for like trades hall people to cut ties with cop unions and stuff. What do you, what do you think and, about that? And rightly that? so, and I hate to say it, but I think the, the, 
police union seems to almost do a better job of standing up for its at least its white <laughs> members than a lot of That's other unions. Point. Like they wield more power and influence over the over the politicians and the major parties. They're far more like staunch and loyal in defending individual members, even when individual cops have done really awful things. Mm. And like even in in sort of comparatively high profile matters like mine, where I'm a public official and I've been like repeatedly and continually harassed and abused online by a serving police officer. And then that serving police officer has targeted me and unlawfully fined me for a traffic offense based on his personal grudge against me. Even in that Mm. context, like I write to the commissioner and I write to the police minister and say, hey, what happened to this officer? Was he disciplined? Um, Is he still serving? I don't even get a reply. Like they don't yeah. even feel they don't even feel that there's enough pressure to send a, a mm. reply to a, an elected representative who's been deliberately targeted and, and harassed online by a serving police officer. So that sense of impunity is so strong and entrenched, and these guys feel so comfortable that they're not going to face consequences when they do act inappropriately. Yeah, yeah, and like you said, you know, it's a thing of if this is what has been caught in a few instances of of recording cops. Um, like what else is there? And yeah, if they aren't even willing, like if that's their response to someone who has, you know, a lot of privilege, a, yeah. a significant, yeah, significant level of power and a, and a big platform. Like, what about people who don't? I, I mean, yeah, and and you say that the police are beyond reform, but it's it's true. Like, I think we still have Greens policies and initiatives that would be like, yeah, we need more more training. And I bet that that is the kind of thing that is probably going to come out of this inquiry. We have this in- ongoing inquiry in Queensland, or actually the report's going to come out soon. Th- this was the inquiry into Queensland police responses to domestic and family violence and sexual assault. And that kind of kicked off largely in thanks to, I would say, the reporting of like a couple of journalists at The Guardian, while every other fucking journalist just completely ignores it. But yeah, the, the report's coming out on that soon. We heard horrific stories of how cops deal with women, deal with domestic and family violence situations. And a lot of uh, how fucking racist they are has come out, even though this inquiry doesn't specifically deal with that. It's like, what's... <laughs> you start yeah, looking at the I cops. Just, I'm like, You're going to get some optimistic. racism. It's going to come up, you know. Like, yeah. I am. No, I mean, yeah, it's the police. But it's like, yeah, I, you just know, right, that they're, they're going to be like, well, we did the inquiry and we've got the report and the recommendations say do this training and hire more police liaison officers. And that's it. Like, yeah, it, it, it makes you wonder if those, those kind of that veneer of progress when you talk about reform, I guess that's why... Is that why you think it's important to push back against reform because it is a distraction and it can make them say that they're doing something when they're not and it's not fixed? Yeah, and I mean I I do come from a position of privilege in this, so I'm kind of cautious of like not speaking for the people who are most directly targeted by cops. But like Mm. there are some – sorts of reforms that would really help in a sort of immediate material sense of improving people's safety. And like a lot of First Nations scholars talk about that sort of stuff, but in the same breath, they'll say, yeah, look, it would be good if we, if we did this, this, and this to stop people getting, you know, beaten up in the watch house, but there's no amount of reform that's going to fix this institution. And, and partly like it comes back to what we think the role of police in society actually is. And Mm. there's a lot of people who still think the role of police in society is to keep ordinary people safe from harm. And those people are 
seriously misled, right? Like that is a, yeah. there's been a sustained propaganda campaign for decades and decades since the inception of the modern police force that this idea that police exist to keep ordinary people safe. They don't. They do the bare minimum to keep ordinary people safe in order to be able to continually satisfy that narrative and justify mm. their own existence. But by and large, police exist to preserve and, and maintain the interests of the colonial nation state and like the wealthiest members of society and, and big business interests. They don't even really care about the property rights of, of really poor people. Like anyone who's ever had a, mm. a bicycle stolen or like some some you know, family heirlooms stolen at a break-in at their home will tell you that actually the cops didn't really do much. They just like yeah. took the details and that was it. So they don't even necessarily exist to protect property rights in in the general sense. They exist primarily to protect the property, property rights and the wealth of a privileged elite and to maintain yeah. the status quo and to crush or demobilize any form of organized dissent. And that came mm-hmm. through in some of the recordings that the that we heard from the Guardian where like one of the coppers is sort of going on about like our role in society is to keep keep the police and if I was down there at the protest I'd be skull dragging protesters Mm. off the road kind of thing like they see themselves as playing that role that you know keeping the police includes keeping the peace includes suppressing any kind of dissent uh and Mm. when you look back at the history of how police formed often in lots of jurisdictions that was one of the main motivations for governments to you know they supplanted older systems like sheriffs or like court systems where people would make complaints about each other or whatever and replace it with this organized police force that was really there to like stop dock workers like going on strike or to like stop a bunch of like poor people from like stealing food to feed their families or from like organizing collectively to resist state oppression. Like throughout history, that's the the main role that the police have been used for is to suppress organized dissent. And mm-hmm. um, you also see that reflected in how they allocate their resources today, where like there'll be a really small protest at, at the convention center at South Bank against a military weapons expo. And there's like 50 cops there. Yeah. They're, sometimes they're outnumbering the number of protesters on the ground. Um, like yeah. that's, stuff's wild. It is. Yeah, it is. And I think you're right. Like, I think that there has been a shift uh, in kind of public opinion of police understanding of the role that police play and the role that, you know, prisons and police more generally in in Queensland. I mean, this week it's been pretty heavy, but it's and it's it's astounding to see the media finally reporting on a bunch of things. Yeah, this week there's finally been a bunch of media reporting about things that you probably wouldn't have seen media reporting on a few years ago or not in the way that they are reporting on it now. So, like, you know, reporting on children being held in in watch houses, this was in response to a Greens question on on notice in Parliament that showed that, like, young kids are being held for longer than two weeks in a fucking police watch house, Um, 10-year-old kids being held overnight. 80% of those kids are First Nations children, and that that proportion gets even higher the younger that you go. Um, There was the the Four Corners report on the treatment of children in detention across the country, in particular, you know, some really horrific detention centres in WA and the practices that, you know, um, screws are using there. And the the fact that this this national report on raising the age was buried, Queensland government releases their long awaited review of their youth justice reforms at like eight thirty p.m. <laughs> on a Tuesday night while all of this is happening that they've been sitting on for about six months. So clearly they realise that this is looking bad for them, and I I think you know it's I'm it feels a bit weird to say this because it's like it's patting ourselves on the back a little bit. But I think it's true that if 
we didn't have Greens, like elected Greens representatives in Queensland, there would be no one putting this view that maybe we shouldn't lock children up, maybe the police shouldn't be given responsibility of like keeping our fucking communities safe when they clearly can't do it. There would be no one saying that in the media and in public forums and in parliament and in council. And it goes to show that even it feels like we're pushing shit uphill sometimes, but I think that like, yeah, even just having one voice to stand up in discussion or debate of these issues and not just parrot the same shit about yeah we need to crack down we need to you know mm. be tough on crime and and we back our police in all the way <laughs> totally I, I mean i think i depart slightly from that analysis in that like there are lots of people at you know talking about police violence and lots of first nations people who've been talking about racism yeah yeah oh, who aren't course, who aren't yeah. elected reps but also like we've had a Green senator in Queensland for well over a decade who could have been talking more about this stuff. And so it's not necessarily enough just to have elected Greens reps to raise this issue. You actually need reps who are committed to talking openly about this stuff and to taking these issues head on and who are willing to burn political capital in the process Mm. because it's it's very easy to not talk about this stuff. Like no one's rushing to us for comment. We have to proactively put out media releases and, and, you know, go out of our way to court controversy and and tell people where we stand on this stuff. So, Mm. you know, there's there's also got to be a deliberate political commitment from the Greens or from individual politicians to be like, yeah, we're going to spend more time and and oxygen talking about this sort of stuff. Mm. But yeah, like I... Sorry, what were you going to say, Tom? Oh, sorry. Well, just to complicate the picture a little bit, I'm interested in what you make of the polling that sort of came out of the conversation in the States, particularly in the wake of Black Lives Matter, of a response that some would say to defund or abolish movements. Mm. Polling from working class communities or people, you know, in, in pretty, you know, deprived areas who face a lot of crime and poverty on a regular basis. Often you would see these poll results that would suggest that people want more policing or, again, feel like the police aren't doing yeah. their job, actually want, you know, more resources dedicated to sorting out, you know, addressing a whole bunch of problems that they see facing their community on a regular basis. And I suppose also tied into that, the the way, the role of our of police in society in which they're given a million jobs that they have to do and so the response to mental health crises, to homeless people, et cetera, apparently it's this person with a gun rocking up to try and sort out the situation. So, yeah, I, it, it feels like people obviously want society to work better and the answer that we're given or those those people believe in mm. or are told to believe in is that the answer to that is more cops or better cops or better funded cops but but but, 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 but that polling is still there and some leftist movements get some pushback because it sounds like they're disconnected from hearing those needs from those communities yeah. so yeah be interested in your thoughts on that yeah and I, I mean i don't know enough about those polls and but i like i'm always dubious of of data, data sets that seem to support establishment narratives um right but i I do also think we need to be clear-eyed clear-eyed about the fact that there are lots of white australians and presumably white americans from you know all income levels who also have a deeper commitment to the colonial nation state and who understand instinctively on some level that they might not have much privilege within the current class structure but they still benefit from the general maintenance of a racist imperial system at large and and the police are playing a big role in that mm. yeah there's you know there's multiple layers to this and i i reckon if you if you did those surveys, for example, in like First Nations communities in the US who are also, you know, very poor, working class, whatever, you might get quite different results 
depending on who you're surveying and how you're polling them and how you're framing the questions. But mm. you're right. Like really it's, it's a question, it's a problem of how, what solutions are being put on the table and what people are seeing as, as possible. And I think to come back to Emerald's interesting point about like the role of the Greens in this stuff, like we do have to walk this weird line between calling for achievable reforms to try and minimize harm and, and like reduce mm. the negative impacts of these institutions. And like, it's been great that the Greens in Queensland have been a bit more vocal about like raising the age and stopping kids being locked up in watch houses but when we when we primarily are calling for raising the age from 10 to 14 years Mm. that's sort of implying or signaling that locking up a 15 year old is somehow appropriate or that locking up anyone is an effective response to crime like it's still and it reminds me a little bit of how when there was a big push against around kids off Nauru and not locking up refugee Mm. children in offshore detention centers there was this big moral appeal to the idea that it's wrong to incarcerate children, yeah. but that Women didn't do children, anything yeah. to destabilize the idea that it was acceptable to lock up boat people in general. So there was, mm. you know, by making these sort of reformist appeals about like certain kinds of people shouldn't be locked up, we're still mm. implying that there are real criminals who legitimately the best thing to do with them is to lock them up and throw away the key. And and I think when Greens MPs in particular are talking about this stuff, we need to be really thoughtful about what work we're doing in the political landscape because we might feel like we're challenging the system. But if we're still indirectly reinforcing the, the idea that prisons and police are good things and that we need them in society, it's just a question of who should be locked up and who shouldn't, we actually might be doing more damage to the cause than we realise. And I think there's a, a risk of letting our strategy be led by larger NGOs or like sort of reformist advocacy groups rather than thinking about, okay, well, what is our actual role in the political landscape? Are we here just to talk about slight minor improvements or do we need to point out the fundamental contradictions in society? And I think there'd be a lot of Greens members who, if, for example, the Greens started saying, oh, we want to keep mining more coal forever, but we just want to mine it a little less or a little differently. People are like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. We have to, we have to move away from coal. Maybe we, sh- we have to abolish coal mining, right? Like we mm. have to talk about just transitions and the alternatives and all that sort of stuff as well. But we take a really strong position on some of those issues because we, we understand that the idea of burning fossil fuels can't be reformed and that that just yeah. has to end. And it's a conversation about how we end it. Whereas when we talk about, say, the police and other racist institutions, we're still sort of saying, oh, how can we reform this but not talking enough about the end goal, which I think should probably be abolition or depending what you want, what label you want to put on it. Yeah. I think the best thing for the cause would be Peter Dutton constantly talking about his record as a Queensland cop <laughs> and more and more people saying, oh, fuck, hmm. that's what they look like and that's what they're like. Let's <laughs> try and milk that. Well, it's the same story again, this election. Basically, the trends that we saw out of the federal election is that the Greens are going to do particularly well. If we look at the polling we've seen, we saw the news poll on Monday. We saw Freshwater Strategy had a poll out in the AFR on Monday as well. That's showing a 14% primary vote for the Greens, which is a 3% uptick since the 2018 election. All right. Well, uh, just briefly before we say goodbye, Jono, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll crack on. We were interested in your thoughts in the situation around Victoria. Of course, the Victorian state election is coming up. And shit is getting dirty. The polling is looking pretty good for the Greens. There's talk of potentially picking up a total of five seats, which would be pretty wild. And the Victorian Labor Party, the Socialist People's Republic of Victoria Labor Party, is pouring money into telling (laughs) voters the facts about the Greens. Thank God. Hashtag Green Facts. They came to light in the past week. They've posted massive rock posters around Richmond, Northcote and Albert Park. These are areas where the Greens are looking really good. 
big old posters that say, one survivor told the ABC, the Greens don't care about what happens to women in the party. What they care about is their public image. Sources, four corners. Another one said, the Greens stand accused of 39 cases of bullying, discrimination, sexual assault, and transphobia. Source, a whole bunch of places, the ABC, The Age, John Fain, 7.30 Report. Various dates from 2014 to 2022. Okay, so quite a long period there. And presumably it's not just the Victorian Greens, it's any bad story for the Greens across the country. Mm. Uh, finishes with a tagline, no one's above accountability, greensfacts.com. Authorised <laughs> by the Labor Party. <laughs> this is all authorised by the <laughs> right. Labor Party. Uh, of course, if you go to greensfacts.com, the website doesn't fucking work. Wait, it doesn't work? You go to that website and it's like you need to put in a website in order to access the facts, which is very annoying. Obviously, we oh, all like a password because we had one. We had a working functional greensfacts.com during the Queensland state election. Oh, shit. Um, that, yeah, just like compiled a bunch of headlines and kind of out of context attacks on the party. But at right. least, I mean, at least Queensland Labor could get their shit together to actually <laughs> to get, uh, the get the website working. <laughs> well, apparently not, yes. But they managed to sort out the posters in time before launching the website. It all seems a bit bizarre. <laughs> but, yes, obviously you guys have been the recipients of these tax before, these specific Greens facts uh, attacks before. What what do you make of them? How do you feel about them or view them in the political context, Jono? Should we be worried about this kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you guys talked about this stuff a little bit before, but as a starting point, we shouldn't let our strategy and our messaging be dictated to us entirely by our political adversaries. And yeah. I think too often in in like as as a result of this weird risk management mentality, senior leadership in, in the party will be like, oh, we've just got to get this story out of the news. So let's sort of dismiss a candidate or let's like fold under pressure essentially. And I think yeah. the Queensland experience would suggest that that's not the best approach and that we're better off saying, look, this is just a bad faith attack from someone who's worried about losing votes to us. Yeah. The challenge is like, can we do that while still acknowledging that, yeah, maybe in some cases there was mm. some wrongdoing or a sexual assault mm. complaint was really poorly handled by the Greens rather than yeah. saying, no, these claim- claims are baseless, they're complete, the Greens are perfect. Like the yeah. par- party is not perfect. <laughs> and I think it's more honest mm. to just say, yeah, Obviously, like the political party has problems, but they're nowhere near as bad as you're making out and you're only saying this right now because you're worried about losing votes to us. So I think there's there's a little more nuance to it because I think it would be a mistake to just be like, oh, that's just Labor saying that, nothing to see here. And then I think, right. you know, that does a disservice to our own support base and, and movement more generally. But I think the other piece of the puzzle here is like how funny it is to watch Greens members and supporters being so indignant of like, they're attacking us? What? It's like, <laughs> dude, they're... Of course, like our vote is growing. <laughs> We're becoming a more significant threat to the political establishment. Did you really think they would just let us win more seats and win more votes unchallenged? Like there, there's a certain naivety on the part of Greens members and like a lot of hand-wringing and like a lot of, you know, circle jerky discussions where it's like, oh, <laughs> they, they shouldn't be coming after us though. It's like that's how <laughs> adversarial politics works in a hierarchical representative system. We shouldn't have that kind of political system, but that's mm. the space you're playing in. So don't act surprised when they come for you. And rather, we should be strategizing about this and thinking deeply about what what forms of responses we are ethically comfortable or uncomfortable with and, mm. and recognizing that there's no way we're going to win more and more seats without those attacks becoming more and more, and more strident and aggressive and probably effective. And, mm. you know, for... For the, the two major political parties, by far one of the strongest meta-narratives is the idea that the Greens are just like them, that, that we're just another big yeah. party that's disconnected from ordinary people. And it's going to be hard as we grow to insulate against that 
implied criticism. They won't necessarily say that directly, but that's that's the narrative that they want to get out there in society. It's not really about the individual smears or the individual attacks. It's, oh, the Greens are just as dirty as the rest of us. And, mm. and like, we have to have good strategies for how we insulate against that. And that can't just be a messaging strategy. That requires us to actually build a political movement that is foundationally different, that does practice grassroots participatory democracy and that does work to decentralize power and that does work to hold people who are abusers or who are act oppressively to account. And we actually have to do that stuff. And that's the best way to insulate against those kinds of attacks on the long term, rather than just being like, what's the perfect message or what's the right way to respond to this individual attack? It's like, yeah, we we have to, the best way to insulate against that attack is to not actually become like the major parties. So yeah, it's a, it's a bigger conversation in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, someone has responded by graffitiing over one of these signs, fuck you, AOP hypocrites, and whiting out fa- green facts, <laughs> replacing facts with lies in big red spray paint. So is that like, is that a, a tactic you'd recommend? That's part of it. That's definitely one, one, one tactic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Add that to the toolkit. It's, it's definitely a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, and for sure, we should be at every opportunity pointing out how self-serving and ridiculous these attacks are and how disingenuous they are but um Mm. yeah there's there's a deeper level to this and and i think really a lot of particularly up here in queensland like it's only been like the last one or two election cycles that the labor party Mm. has really started coming for us and people weren't emotionally Mm. prepared for it and and they've like i think quite a few people have had like some fairly heavy mental health responses as a result of feeling mm. attacked or, or undermined or betrayed sometimes by people who you thought were on your side kind of thing. That's, yeah, there's a certain naivety that we're, we're going to have to get over as a political movement if we're going to be winning more seats and, and more effective at wielding power in, an, in a just and ethical way. I mean, one of the big problems and one of the big consequences of these kinds of attacks over time is that a party becomes more risk averse and wants to close ranks and shut yeah. down open conversations. Mm-hmm. Like I've watched, say, in the Queensland Greens, groups like the Queensland Campaign Committee and the Management Committee and like a lot of those key decision-making bodies are becoming more, not I wouldn't say insular, but like they have fewer open meetings and more things will be declared confidential or would say, oh, like we, we can't tell all the members about this in case it leaks out and gets used against us or whatever. Mm. And so we, we are responding to those external attacks by in a way becoming slightly less democratic or transparent internally. And I think that's the wrong direction mm. to be heading in. Like I even remember in my 2016 election campaign, we literally had open campaign strategy meetings. We just put them up on Facebook and anyone could come along and hear about our like internal strategic discussions about where we would go door knocking mm-hmm. and what would go on the flyer. And I remember one Labor staffer came along just like to look in and see what we were talking about. And we weren't secure about it at all. We we're just like, oh, welcome. Do you, you're from Labor. Do you want to come door knocking with us? Like it was this weird, almost radical transparency or naive openness. Whereas now the party's like, oh, we're running an election campaign. These five people are on the committee. They will know everything and we'll then have to have a top-down um, strategy that's farmed out to the volunteers and the members for everyone else to enact. But we're, we're creating and establishing new forms of hierarchy in response to those external attacks. But in the long term, that risks turning us into more like the other parties, which is exactly mm. what the substance of their attacks is. So, yeah, it's a weird paradox. Mm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously you have to protect the party. And, like, I think, as you say, not be naive enough to kind of ignore the fact that that people are going to try and infiltrate and, and attack and everything. But, yeah, I don't know what the like what the, the right balance is to actually protect the party while allowing it to grow because you can't grow yeah. if you don't let anyone in. 
Like, and Emerald, I feel like I could, I could almost imagine the cogs wearing in your head. We're like, holy shit! If we opened up a campaign, I mean, this could go wrong, and this could go wrong. Because oh as, my god, well, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, like exactly, when you talk about right? being personally betrayed, you know, I yeah, yeah, yeah like someone totally. who I really trusted really tried to fuck us in yeah. the 2020 mm. election. So it is traumatic, but it's like yeah. I think that we have learned in positive ways. But we still, I, I agree that I fear if the response is just closing ranks, like. You know, when it comes to giving volunteers access to things, for example, that's just we're not going to be able to build the kind of movement that we need to. So mm. it's we have to keep that in mind when we're doing that. Yeah, maybe closing ranks isn't even the right term, but it just it's it's a weird flex, right? Mm. Like we want to be more democratic and inclusive. <laughs> we should be like the cops, right? We gotta we gotta protect each other, <laughs> yes, just sorry, like yeah. the cops. Yeah, <laughs> right. and and I wonder about the like, yeah, because we're trying to grow a movement of people who are free thinkers and intellectually engaged and can be meaningfully involved in strategic discussions. But mm. if as a result of the fear of external attack and bad faith criticism, we only allow a few people to participate in those in-depth strategic discussions, then there's a whole layer of volunteers and supporters and members who are left out of those discussions and thus mm. less capable of contributing in a, in a deep and meaningful way to those strategic conversations. And that reinforces itself over time until you have this like tiny little Politburo of the people who are actually making all the decisions because they don't trust anyone else to be involved mm. um so yeah it's it's not a small thing like it's, it's actually quite fundamental to how the party grows but that's a whole another conversation for another day i guess <laughs> man well you're welcome to come back on the show anytime because uh, you make us think and challenge us <laughs> and uh get those conversations going john i said thank you for coming back on serious danger man we appreciate it thanks john Thanks. But yeah, before I go, I just want to give a particular shout out to the Debian Creek struggle, which is a special place just south, south of Ipswich, which was a former Aboriginal mission and concentration camp. I think you have talked about it on the show before, but mm. right now the Queensland Labor government is basically allowing private property developers to bulldoze an ecologically significant area of intact bushland that was a former Aboriginal mission site. And it's really sacred to a, a lot of First Nations people from across Southeast Queensland, because not mm. only were the local mob rounded up and kept there, but people from across the the region were sort yeah. of forced into slavery on that site. So look up the Debing Creek campaign. I think it's a really important struggle to be elevating and probably one of the most historic and significant land rights struggles in Southeast Queensland history. Yeah, thanks, Ronnie. Thanks. Big River, now we know your current is strong. Yeah. That's why we're hauling this houseboat back home. Rough. Where will you be on the 26th of November this Saturday, Tom? I will be handing out greens flyers at the polling booth on election day, actually, all morning. <laughs> Even though it's your literal birthday. It's 33. Who gives a fuck, you know? It's nothing. <laughs> nothing. Oh, well, that's true. And you know what's not nothing? The opportunity that the Victorian Greens have to win extra seats. I've been hearing, I've been hearing whispers and, you know, rumours and little gossipings about how it's very possible that we are in with a shot in quite a few seats in this election, yeah. could hold bounds of power. It's fucking huge. You don't want to miss it, folks. If you're not signed up for a booth already on election day and ideally like get down for pre-poll this week, fucking do that right now. Uh, victoria.greens.org.au forward slash volunteer or just, you know, if you see call outs on, on social media, get in touch with, with pages, get in touch with people that you know that would be rostering folks on booths. If you, for some reason, can't make it to a booth, there are obviously still other things that you can do. Um, there's probably calls. I don't know if folks are still doing door knocking, but, you know, 
there's there's stuff that you can do. Is there still letterboxing happening? I know you've been doing a bit of letterboxing, Tom. Yes, I've been out there. I've still got half a box to complete my little map, um, but I've been out there having a wonderful time generally. Sometimes people are like in their front garden and you have a little chat with them then. That's quite nice. Normally oh, you yeah. just sort of pop it in the letterbox. Letter knocking. I had a good one and a bad one. One. <laughs> I was I was walking around and one guy from across the street yelled out, Hey the Greens, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> he just called me the Greens, which I quite like. Oh, you are the oh okay, so it's not like Hey the Greens. Yeah, he, it's me. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and the other one is someone recognized me as, as comedian Tom Ballard. And they were like, mm, Oh TV's Tom Ballard. They said, So is this what you're doing now? <laughs> And I'm like, well, it's what I'm doing right now, yes. But you know, wow, this is this is. Did you tell them there. about your book? I did not. No, I I, oh, I laughed and kept walking and tried to hide my tears. <laughs> but no, <laughs> it's great. You're out there in your local community, um, giving them junk mail. No, not junk mail. Important information about their local Greens <laughs> candidate and all the cool things that we stand for. That's a good thing to do. If you're Victorian and you're voting, please vote below the line because fucking hell, there's all this stuff that came out this week about Glenn Drury, mm. who's this preference whisperer. You know, there was a video with he, him literally saying Labor doesn't want to change the group voting system in Victoria because it keeps the Greens out, like specifically. He offers these services for like 50 grand. It's anti-democratic. It's bullshit. And one thing, you know, people who care about electoral reform are saying is don't vote above the line, vote below the line to, you know, somewhat undermine this preference whisper bullshit. So keep that in mind, please, when you actually go into the booth and uh, and enact your democratic rights, please. Hmm. If you're not in Victoria, you know, talk to your Victorian friends, tell them to vote blue line, tell them to, to vote greens, obviously. If you feel like it, if you're rich and got some time on your hands, fucking fly down, jump on a booth, go for it. Uh, <laughs> they will need all hands on deck. Lie. Say that you live in Victoria and vote for the greens. Yeah, do, do, do that. Commit electoral fraud. Yeah. Parody. This is parody, but do it. Yeah. yeah. You probably can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast is going to get shut down. Yes. Our next ep will be recorded before the actual results of the thing, and we'll mm. explain all that next week. But don't worry, we will be looking at the results of the Victorian election and uh, going through them with a fine-tooth comb and more on that to come on the show. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Follow us on social media at Serious Danger AU, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to us on YouTube. You can always say hello. Hello at SeriousDangerPod.com. Thanks, Emerald Moon. Thanks, Tom Ballard. Brackets official. <laughs> Serious danger, Australia.